Hi, folks, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lex Rex Institute podcast. Today's one that we've been really excited to share with you. We've been hyping it up all year. Uh, hopefully, we can we can make good on that promise. But it's an episode about well, one of history's most fascinating minds: the life, character, works, deeds, and influence mm -hmm. of one of history's most well. I don't know. What word should I use? What what captures the uh, je ne sais quoi <laughs> of Jeremy Bentham? What captures his unique brand of sophistry without having good words, irritating pedantry <laughs> about every point that most of which he actually, I think all of which he made up and then implicitly rejects two sentences later. Uh, what combines his unique blend of complete self-assuredness and... Yeah, the only word I can think of mm -hmm. that is appropriate for our listeners uh, <laughs> is going to be the word scholastic. But understand, when I use the word scholastic, because you know I use that because they kind of were also very fixated with detail that they made up that didn't actually have any bearing on reality. Uh, but when I use that word scholastic, just keep in mind, I'm actually meaning a much meaner <laughs> word there. And, and you should sort of mentally replace it uh, with a much meaner okay. word. Okay, yeah, so. fair enough. Um... So Jeremy Bentham, uh, why? why why is Jeremy Bentham? That's um that's probably a bit more of a a big picture question than we're typically going to get into on this show. But uh, why, why are we talking about him? I can I think I can can take a crack at that. Yeah, if he doesn't have any merit, why is he worth <laughs> talking about? You know, like <laughs> that's uh well that's because I guess it's because you can't talk to him because his head's not going to talk back. No, that's true. Um, his head. And we'll get into that. But. He said, we'll not talk back. You can look at his head, or at least a facsimile of his you head. Um, but uh, yeah, Jeremy Bentham is one of the people with a, a truly outsized influence on all kinds of things that we take for granted today in, in, in political theory, in sociology, and in law, and ethics. Theory of law. Yep. And it's just kind of implicitly accepted. Like, there aren't a lot of Benthamites no. out there, right? No one's going to call themselves, I'm a Benthamite. Very few, but anyway. If you look at what men today believe, and you compare that, you know, in, in the realm of law, politics, society, yeah. and you compare that against what you know, the average man in America or Britain would have believed in, say, 1750 mm -hmm. or even 1776, a huge, a shockingly outsized proportion of the differences in our outlook and way of viewing the world are going to be directly attributable to Jeremy Bentham. Yeah. And despite that, very few people know him for anything more than probably a, you know, a, a 30 second the head thing. bit in history class where your teacher told you the head thing. Well, right? no, <laughs> maybe maybe utilitarianism. Yeah. You know, the greatest happiness principle, greatest happiness to the greatest number right. of people. Exactly. What makes something ethical, which is probably the worst <laughs> ethical system anyone's ever come up with. But we, <laughs> you know, maybe not the worst, but it's, it's one, one of the worst that uh, we'll isn't. Get into that. Um, one of the most logically poor, I yeah. should say. Like it's not necessarily the most unethical, right. but one of the most ill-conceived. Yeah, and, and one of the worst, I think that anybody even remotely take serious for more than a few seconds like seriously yeah. but yes did i say serious okay. you did uh, well i'm tired forgive me um. <laughs> <laughs> you're forgiven anyway here's our intro 
Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Now, I believe, David, you were going to write a Jeremy Bentham song to sort of kick us off on this episode. Uh, well, you insisted that I do that. I want to make that clear um, that this is not something I was volunteering to do. Um, <laughs> and uh, as I, at your insistence, yes. Um, well, you, we play music a lot for these, right? Like we have the, the Russian music for the Soviet ones, the French music for the French mm-hmm. ones. There is no Bentham music because he's not really a... For a guy that liked happiness a lot and his ethical principle, he doesn't seem to have done very many things that would make the average person no. happy. Uh, so we got to make our own song about yeah, him. Yeah, well, and uh, uh, oh, and, and before I, I sing it, first of all, forgive my horrible singing. Um, I don't want to do this, but uh, duty calls. Um, and secondly, uh, you need to know that in Britain, the common nickname for people named Jeremy is either Jez or Jezza. Okay. Jezza Bentham came to town, a perving and a peeping, hid himself behind a veil and watched while you were sleeping. <laughs> we'll explain that a bit later. <laughs> oh, that's good, David. That's very good. Uh, that that's of course a reference to the Panopticon. Yeah. Um, for those, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into <laughs> more detail. Many we'll projects. Into... Yeah, it's we're getting way ahead of ourselves. There's a lot to talk about with this guy for somebody who didn't really do anything in his whole life. Uh, no, so, um, you know, sort of sat in presumably well-lit rooms we'll talk about that later as well (laughs) and wrote um extensively i suspect they weren't well lit i think that's why everyone's objection to all his plans was there's not going to be any natural light here jeremy speaking of uh you know it it is uh 9 15 p.m here but as you can see plenty of natural light in my bedroom uh northern Uh latitudes truly you live in the the society built by jeremy anyway so (laughs) so why jeremy bentham we already kind of covered that uh, but who is this guy? In his own lifetime, he's probably best known for his brother, um, who was a, a, a naval engineer and uh, had you know connections to various politicians and diplomats and was an yeah. attache in the Russian court for a long time. Fairly important ambassador. Yeah. So Jeremy could, uh, Jeremy was kind of always a hanger yeah. on. He's actually 10 years older. I'm yeah, nine Something years like that, older yeah. than his brother. Somewhere right? There. Yeah, but nevertheless, kind of mooched off his brother his uh-huh. whole life, lived with his brother most of his life. I don't think he ever got married. I, I think that's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just kind of tagged along with his brother. But this got him access to a lot of very important mm-hmm. people. Foremost among them, the prime minister of Britain yep. at the time, which was, I think, is that Robert Peel? I believe that's correct. But don't don't quote me yeah. on that. And, but... and Robert Peel being a scholastic <laughs> fellow himself. Actually, I don't think he probably wasn't. Being a uh, lacking judgment, mm-hmm. thought that Jeremy had lots of great ideas. And that was sort of the the origin of these ideas flooding into Anglo-American society. And they only increased their, their death grip ever <laughs> since then. But he was given lots of important projects as a result of being, it was kind of favored by powers that be in government. Um, they, he was commissioned by parliament to write the response to the declaration of independence, which, which we'll talk about next episode, uh, the official response to the declaration of independence. This guy wrote it. Um, 
Was he ever given any other official duties? Or did he just kind of write letters to people telling them to adopt new social? I'm birth? pretty sure it was that. Um, yeah, you know, he, we, we already mentioned the Panopticon. That's the only job he was ever hired to do, was refute the Declaration of Independence? He was, uh, he, he did pass the bar, uh, and I was doing... Well, they didn't have a bar exam at the time. All right, he, he was admitted to the bar, I should say. Yeah. He apprenticed yeah. as an attorney because his dad thought that he was really mm-hmm. smart. Um, because, you know, those kids who are really fixated on details and can remember lists of 200 items yep. um, tend to be regarded by people as smart, irrespective of whether or not they have anything valuable to mm-hmm. contribute. Um, and his dad pushed him into law saying, I think you'll be a great lawyer, son. He's a lawyer for all of what, a couple months before he realized that he hated it because the English legal system wasn't something that he had invented more or less um, and was different from the way that he thought that it should be and spent the rest of his life trying to come up with a new legal system to replace it. So I I was doing a bit of reading um, in some of the, you know, the, the academic literature about Bentham. Um, And you get the sense that a lot of the people who write about him are doing their best not to openly insult him at various points, but, um, except for the ones that yeah. like him, there's a lot there, of, those there are too. some who are, who are gung ho supporters, but a lot of the people who are sort of trying to write neutrally about him, I get the sense that they, well, he's such, we talked, you and I talked about this before about how being a good writer gives you an outsized influence mm-hmm. in terms of like how good your ideas yeah. are. If you're a really good writer, you can have kind of crummy ideas and you can trick people into liking mm-hmm. him anyway. Bentham's a pretty bad yes. writer. <laughs> Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of shocking he ever got any influence, but yeah, reading his work, it's, it does not, um, lend itself to endearment. No. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, as I was doing some of this reading, I came across something right. Someone alluded to his career, if you can call it that as a, as a lawyer. Um, and they, they give the example, someone came to him saying, oh, you know, I, I feel that, uh, I'm owed 50 pounds for some reason or other. And he looked at this person and he said, that's a waste of time. You should go away. I'm not going to do that. And then uh, the, 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 the author of the article. Uh, 50 pounds is a lot time, yes. in, um, in 1700s uh-huh. Britain. It's probably more than enough to cover the legal fees. And the, the author of the article said. Uh, Especially of somebody who has no rent to pay because yeah. his brother. Uh, the, the author of the article said most of his other cases went roughly as well. Um <laughs> So that's an example of, uh, I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, sort of have to write very tongue in cheek about, uh, about Bentham. So I've talked about the writing, David, can we pull up a few excerpts as a show we're talking about? So this is, this is the preface from Panopticon, mm-hmm. which we'll explain what Panopticon is after, right. but go ahead. Well, and this is Mark. Yeah. You'll, you'll anyway. get a sense of it <laughs> from, uh, from what he says, morals reformed, health preserved, industry invigorated instruction diffused public burdens lightened economy seated as it were upon a rock the gordian knot of the poor laws not cut but untied all by a simple idea in architecture exclamation point (laughs) (laughs) that's not exactly what i was thinking of when i said that his writing's really bad um usually it's this just abstruse well here, let me just find the let me section. let me go. Well, let me go uh, on because that's that's just the the part at the very sure, end sure. that he italicizes. So that's what he wants you to know. Sort of the, uh, you know, the tagline is, "Thus much much I ventured to say on laying down the pen, and thus much I should perhaps have said on taking it up if at that early period I had seen the whole of the way before me. 
a new mode of obtaining power of mind That's... over mind in a quantity hitherto without example, and that to a degree equally without example, secured by whoever chooses to have it so, against abuse, such as the engine, such the work that may be done with it. How far the expectations thus held out have been fulfilled, the reader will decide. Did that make any sense to anybody <laughs> listening? I kind of doubt it. Now, I know that anybody writing in the late 1800s, I'm sorry, late 1700s is going to have much more complex sentence structure than yeah. we do now. That is not what I'm objecting to. I love that style of writing. <laughs> he I really think that's does. great. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Bentham is a bad yeah. writer. Like, that is just not, not well no. expressed. See, here's a, here's a random section from the middle, or from the, oh, this is a fairly lengthy paragraph. Oh, yeah, here's the light again. To prevent thorough light, whereby notwithstanding the blinds, the prisoners would see from the cells whether or no any person was on the lodge, the apartment is divided into quarters by partitions formed by two diameters of the circle, crossing each other at right angles. For these partitions, the thinnest materials might serve. Like, it's, the whole thing is just abstruse as heck. We did a book club <laughs> on this book once. Um, David... And Alex Bostic, who's been on this podcast before, and I've decided we were going to read this. I, I should say you guys decided we were going to read it and basically shanghaied me into doing it. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it's Disclaim all, all responsibility for I this do, now. I, I will, anyway, so... because I was not responsible for that. <laughs> I, we're I went along with it. The, the... I will, you know, I, I, I'm not innocent, but... <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> we're still on who Jeremy mm. Bentham is. Um... The guy who invented the panopticon. What is the panopticon? Well, it's a circular prison where the warden sits in the middle and all of the cells are arranged around the perimeter of the circle so that the warden can see into all of them at any time. And benefits of this are that people can be watched and scrutinized 24-7, mm -hmm. um, which Jeremy Bentham thinks can be used not just for prisons, but for and schools and hospitals, anything, basically yeah. anything, because where, where, where wouldn't you want to spy on people while they sleep? And that, that's what David's song was a reference <laughs> yes. to. Um, he is a bit of a, a peeping Tom. Or at, at um, the very least, um, he had the design sensibilities of, uh, of a peeping Tom. Yeah. If you read Panopticon, he really gets enthusiastic. He does. Um, yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't want to get too uh, too graphic, but he does dwell at length on the fact that the person in the middle can see everyone, and they can't see him all the time. Oh, they they can't <laughs> they see can't. him. <laughs> <laughs> and he makes a point. I was like, and whatever they're doing, he can yeah. see it. He can see it, even if it's things that they might not want to have seen. <laughs> and they, you know, they won't know. He's it's too late. He's seen everything. Yeah, they they won't, you know, the man in the middle, because it is supposed to be just one, unless at one point he suggests that the man's entire family will live with him in this in this one chamber. And the kids can watch while he's asleep, remember? In the middle of a prison. <laughs> at one point he does suggest that, but most of the time it's just one man in there by himself. Um so he can't obviously he can't watch everyone at the same time, but the benefit of the fact that he's behind this sort of Wizard of Oz they don't curtain know. is that they know that they could be being watched at any given time, but they don't know that they are being watched. Uh. Yeah. I think it shows a lot about his psyche. So yeah. that's, that's at least one aspect of who he is. He's also probably more importantly thing we probably should have started with. He's the father of utilitarianism. Yes. <laughs> so utilitarianism, you probably heard in school. Jeremy Bentham might have been mentioned. More likely Jeremy Bentham's sort of 
not literal student, but um, uh, an enth- yeah, an enthusiast for the Benthamite I idea, I guess. Yeah, the next generation yeah. of of Benthamic mm-hmm. reasoning um, is John Stuart yeah. Mill, who's a much more well known philosopher, at least in terms of like named philosopher. He was he, other writers actually respected him when he was right. alive, not just politicians and people who matter, uh, but people who get you notoriety right. as well. Um, so John Stuart Mill really popularizes utilitarianism, but utilitarianism is best summarized not by Bentham, because <laughs> Bentham can't summarize, no. but by John Stuart Mill, who defined it with the greatest happiness principle. Mm-hmm. Utilitarianism was uh, that which brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. Yeah. That's kind of his theory. That's his big thing. <laughs> right. Um, there's real problems there. <laughs> For one thing, it doesn't really answer the question of what's ethical. It just kind of offsets it by one level. Um, For for another, it's very ambiguous what's meant by happiness. Yeah. And Um, for another, it's not clear how you weigh multiple people being happy against degrees of happiness. All kinds of problems with this system. None of which Jeremy answered for us. So. Yeah. So there are lots of well-known philosophical critiques of utilitarianism, including things like, you know, how do you know? First of all, you know, on a very basic level, how do you know what actually gives people happiness? Does everything make everyone happy in the same way? And, you know, are different people? I think the implied model here is, is a democratic one. People vote. Sort of. <laughs> we can get yeah, to that. I, I mean, it's and that's a kind of a lot of the reason why this idea has become popular is that on a superficial and kind of idiotic level, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it, it pairs neatly with systems where people yeah, vote. The, uh, which were which were very new in the Anglo world when Bentham was writing, because like one of his most prolific years is 1776. Yeah. So he he comes onto the scene right when Britons are learning about this new self government <laughs> thing, um, and then they see France do it, and they and they get it in their heads that what we did was a, a democracy movement, right. even though you know we talked about before how it was not, uh, and we're a republic, although there are democratic mm-hmm. elements, um, and and they think well democracy, I mean. It lost us a colony and it overturned France. Maybe we ought to think about it a little bit. And then and then Jeremy Bentham comes along with this system that pairs well with democracy to an idiot. Yeah, it, it says something about doing things that are good for more people. Um, or at least, you know, could be read that way. You know, greatest happiness for the greatest number. Um, right. And the, only, and the only way you could possibly find that is voting. So... It, it, it lends credence to the idea of that system. Or uh, if you're if you're Bentham, you think you can do it um, just by reasoning about things in your particular mode. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, yeah. I guess. Because he's not an advocate for democracy. No, uh, <laughs> his political philosophy... In fact, he argues the sovereign is subject to no one. Yeah, his political philosophy is perfectly <laughs> compatible with just the most abject kinds of tyranny. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. which, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, everybody talks about like divine right of kings, like like suggesting that every country that had a king believed in, in this model that was very specific to the Bourbon yeah. monarchy. Um, and they're like, oh, that was the whole idea behind kings. No, nobody thought that. Only the Bourbons thought that. But Jeremy Bentham's model of the supremacy of the sovereign of a state is about as robust as the Bourbons model of divine right of kings. Yeah. And we'll get to that when we get to his legal work. But anyway, he's not really a fan of representative government. That's why they hired him to write the critique of the Declaration <laughs> of Independence. Uh, but what else about utilitarianism, David? Yeah, well, utilitarianism, 
runs into well, a lot of issues, really. I don't. I'm not even sure where to begin with utilitarianism in some ways, because it's just. Well, I mentioned that it, it doesn't actually answer the ethical question. No. Because they say that which is ethical is that which causes the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. Right. That's a method for finding what is ethical. That does not tell you what is ethical. Yeah. It, it makes every question about moral principles into uh, an equation, really. You're trying to maximize the output of happiness. From yeah. it. And also one that's entirely subjective, yeah. just with a large number of subjects. Right. You know, it's not, there's not, and then this is actually, this is central to Bentham's thought. So I want to really hit this point. Uh, and it's one of the most influential things about Bentham's thought um, is the idea that man is the measure yeah. of ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not something extrinsic to man. There's not rules that, that govern man's behavior. Man is the measuring stick. Right. Because it's, you're fundamentally just trying to produce a psychological effect, namely happiness. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it psychologizes the entire administration of the state. Yeah. Uh, we, we are trying to maximize psychological benefit. That's the purpose of the state. Yeah. It doesn't exist to protect rights. It doesn't exist to prevent wrongs. It exists to ensure that people are maximally happy. Right. And when we get into... Bentham's personal idea of happiness, um, it just, it gets uh, even even worse, really. You went with scholastic as your term for it. Uh, I might say delusional, um, but uh, yeah, a, a, fair a very idiosyncratic notion of what makes people happy. He does account for this though, David. <laughs> and that's sort of. the next point I want to hit here <laughs> is the term happiness is entirely ambiguous in a Benthamic model. Right. Why is it ambiguous? Because he's not clear about what he basically adds up pleasures here with the with the assumption, the implicit assumption that the person that has the most pleasures and no pains is the most happy. Right. So happiness is just something that relates to the amount of pleasure that you're able to experience. Anybody who's ever eaten too much Halloween candy <laughs> can tell you that's not true. Well, no, he because he he accounts for that. Yeah, he accounts for all the things that contradict his theory, right? But it's and then doesn't seem to acknowledge that they contradict. No, it, it's 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 so funny because he f- seems to be under the impression that he's doing sort of very serious, very you know intellectual philosophy. But you, you then you look at the things he says, and it's just being extremely specific about very childish ideas. Um, so this is from, okay, this is from a book that's called Principles of Morals and Legislation. So this is... This is his, if, you know, Aristotle had his ethics. Yeah, this is if his. If Bentham were an Aristotle, this would be him. Right. And, you know, that's, hopefully just the title gives you the sense of this is a very ambitious thing to be doing. You think you're going to explain to people not only what makes something right or wrong morally, but also how you should make laws that govern society in one book. This is all going to be. Yeah. Well, he thinks those are the same. Right. Uh, you know, and that's actually one of one of the biggest mistakes that he makes that people very commonly make now is a total inability to distinguish between ethics and legislation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's something's bad enough or, or rather, I think probably the way most people conceive of it, which is even more Benthamic. You know, think about it is if it's a, a, a wrong hood that affects other people. Yeah. You know, will make other people unhappy then that's something that ought to be the subject of legislation. 
Um, but either way, legislation and ethical principles are just directly related to each other yeah. in, in the modern view that he created. Yeah. Anyway, so how do you know what makes something good or bad? Uh, well, it should have the most utility. And here's what he says utility means. It says, by utility is meant that property in any object whereby it tends to produce benefit, advantage, pleasure, good, or happiness. All this... Thank you for those synonyms, Jeremy. Yeah, all this in the Thanks. present case comes to the same thing, or what comes again to the same thing, to prevent the happening of mischief, pain, evil, or unhappiness. Okay, so that's the way that he phrased the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people. As you can see, it's slightly less eloquent, uh -huh. uh, while, while also not being any clearer. Right, and then how do you know, the next question, how do you know how much utility something has by how much pleasure or pain it causes? And then he says, here's how you know how much pain or pleasure mm -hmm. something causes. He says, there, there, these are the qualities you look for. It's intensity, it's duration, it's certainty or uncertainty. In other words, like, is it definitely going to happen or is there a chance it might not happen? It's proximity no, or remoteness. Like, uh, how soon or how, how that, long is it going to take? That is... These aren't methods. No. These aren't workable. These aren't something you can... And then, all right, the one thing... What's the formula for weighing duration against intensity, Jeremy? Right. That's what we need. Right. And then to your point about... I'd also want to know how to assign quantities to both of those, because those aren't really quantitative things, Jeremy. Right. But you can see that, you know, people who say, like, trust the science for social policy, they're pointing back to this. You know, somebody that, that adopted wholesale Jeremy Bentham's method for arriving at what social policy ought to be would say, oh, it's great that we can now take samples out of people's brains and know how much dopamine is released <laughs> by a thing, because now we can, we can quantitatively measure intensity of pleasure. Right. Which is, hopefully, you already know why that's not true and why that doesn't work, but... Well, it reminds me of the Soviets, who are like, in capitalist society, the amount of money that each person makes isn't fair, and it isn't rational, so we should tie productivity to caloric intake. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the only way you could figure out what work was objectively worth was by measuring how much physical energy it takes to accomplish it. And then you you pay that person accordingly. Why is this more objective? Uh, for for reasons. Anyway, because it's got numbers in it. Well, Bentham's doesn't even have numbers. It it just no. That's the thing <laughs> for a guy whose system requires like constant mathematics and and like arithmetic to figure out what it, what you're going to do on any given thing. The guy seems to have a real aversion to math. I, I don't see any. No actual calculations no. uh, in what he writes. I, I will say that to your point about the Halloween candy and how eating too much of it makes you, you feel bad. He does address that because he says, um, you know, those four things we named earlier, those only apply to a single thing. But when you view it as part of a system, you also have to account for two other things. Uh, it's mm -hmm. fecundity or the chance it has of being followed by sensation of the same kind. That is pleasure. If it be a pleasure pain, if it be a pain and Finally, it's purity or the chance it has. That is of... a, a, such an utterly scholastic way <laughs> to say that it's going to be a long term or a short term pleasure. Yeah. And then finally, it's purity or the chance it has of not being followed by sensations of the opposite kind. That is pains if it be a pleasure, pleasures if it be a pain. Uh-huh. So, you know, you're the little kid eating too much candy. 
that's not a pure pleasure because he's going to get a tummy ache and it's not likely uh, to continue making him happy. So, you know, that's, that's bad too. Great. More non-quantitative factors that you must necessarily weigh as quantities against more non-quantitative factors. Right. So anyway, thank you, Jeremy. The, the big question, the useless system. You get an F, you get an F for this, Jeremy. The big question very obviously is what, how do you know what genuine happiness is? And that's, you know, that's a question that philosophers had been dealing with since yeah, that's the question. Isn't Literally it? the beginning of written philosophy. Aristotle talks about If we this. knew how to do that, yeah. we wouldn't need your system. Right. So, the, so, you know, Thomas Jefferson's method I thought was pretty good. That, you know, the pursuit of happiness, that's an unalienable right. We get to pick what we think will make us happy and do that. Right. Jeremy doesn't agree with that. No. He thinks that he gets to pick what he thinks will make you happy and you have to do that. Yeah, and, you know, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that he he adds a bunch of he talks about that in his he, he adds a bunch of synonyms <laughs> for words like happiness or benefit or pleasure but I, ultimately it, he basically never explains that well, it's like if you had he basically seems to be just talking about pleasure like at the beginning of this book he says nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters pain and pleasure it is for them alone mm-hmm. stimulus response yeah, we're like dogs. it is for them alone to point out what we ought to do as well as to determine what we shall do. And it seems like he's just kind of uh-huh. embarrassed to keep talking about pleasure all the time, so he changes it up sometimes. Remember, the, but, remember that list that you found that was like, things you might not know about Jeremy Bentham? Uh, and one of them is, Jeremy Bentham was an atheist. Really? You don't say. Yeah, the, the only thing that matters in life is maximizing your pleasure, and you, you know that's, that's the only rule. Physical sensation. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it didn't take a genius to make that connection. Yeah, he's. Can we talk about the part where he talks about? Um, I forget how he puts it, but talks about how some people have idiosyncratic yeah. preferences that shouldn't be considered pleasure for some reason. Right, and that's <laughs> yeah. So again, as as we said a minute ago, the big problem is figuring out what makes people happy. Bentham seems to know what makes him. He's happy. He's got it figured out. He he, he definitely yeah. knows what makes him happy, and that's that seems to be pleasure. Um, <laughs> but the weird, no, 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 the weird. I don't think so. The weird thing is. Pretty sure he acknowledges the things that make him happy don't make most people happy, well, and therefore don't count as pleasure. Sort of, sort of. Um, I, I think. All right, so, so I'll just read this section. But I, so he's just introduced this phrase, the principle of sympathy and antipathy, and he says you shouldn't consider ethics in light of that. And, and this is this is what he has to say about that. He says by the principle of sympathy and antipathy, I mean that principle which approves or disapproves of certain actions not on account of their tenden, uh, tending to augment the happiness, nor yet on their on account of their tending to diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question, but merely because a man finds himself disposed to approve or disapprove of them. So there's this... He said earlier yeah. that happy obtaining pleasure and avoiding pain dictate all human actions. Right. But sometimes people seem to just like things because they like them, and that's yeah, even though that thing isn't a pleasurable thing, he likes it anyway. Right. It, it seems pretty clear that it's just he doesn't understand why some people like things that he doesn't like. And so to explain those things away and prove why they shouldn't be taken seriously, he says it's not that you take pleasure from it. You just like it uh-huh. as though that's a meaning, a meaningful distinction in some way. OK, so that's our first point about who he is. <laughs> Father utilitarianism. Second point you got written down here is he was an obsessive. Yes. Which is quite right. We, yeah, I, hopefully some of that 
horrible prose we've read gives you an indication of how pedantically he thinks about things that um, really don't matter very much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my favorite part, I, I, I couldn't find it and I'm really I'll put it up eventually if I do. But my favorite part in Panopticon, take a step yeah. back. This whole book is a series of unsolicited letters that he sent to a friend of his <laughs> about his idea for a circular prison where you can spy on people. Right. And he sends them one at a time over a course of like, what, a couple of years? Something like that, yeah. While he's living in Russia with his brother. Yes. Now, this is the same trip to Russia where ostensibly his purpose for going here was to convince the Tsarina to adopt the legal code that he was writing uh -huh. that is wrote from scratch, wasn't based on anything, made it yeah. up to adopt, you know, convince Russia to adopt it. And I guess that the Tsarina at one point was actually willing to meet with him. Yeah. Was in the same town where he lived, but he said, no, I haven't been working on my legal code. I've just been. <laughs> it's not done. And I don't want to talk about it until it is done. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to meet with the, I don't want to meet with yeah. her. So I'm not, I don't gonna, want to talk to Catherine the great um, until I have this legal code done. Yeah. But meanwhile, he was sending probably weekly letters of chapters of his book about how great it'll be to be able to spy on people in a circle. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. If you read Panopticon, first of all, the, the whole book is a just pursuit of an obsession. He got this idea in his head, which wasn't even his idea. It was actually his brother's idea to, you know, design this like circular building in the middle his of his brother, the engineer. Right. And, and his right? brother's who said, I want to be able to look at the way people are making progress on projects right. so that we can manage projects more effectively. Yeah. So that, and, Jer and Jeremy, being a sick little freak, was like, wouldn't that be way better if we like blocked off the guy in the center from being able to be seen by anybody and used it to keep tabs on people? Right. Yeah. Rather than being a convenient way that like a supervisor at a project could sort of like swivel around and check what different work crews were doing and make sure everything was going okay. What if that were a prison and there was a guy in the middle who gets to just stare at prisoners so that they never have privacy? All day. Or a school. Yeah. So same thing with the yeah. kids. Or a hospital. Yeah, no, no. That, that's part of my point, though. So it, the whole thing quickly shows that it, it... In a hospital, you want nurses making the rounds. You want them to actually go up to patients. You don't want somebody to just be like, huh, I think that guy might be dead. Yeah. The, the way the book progresses, it's clearly he just got this idea fixed in his head how cool a circular prison would be. And then as the book goes on, he seems to realize that the realize it's fundamentally flawed so he writes more chapters just explaining why those aren't flaws that, that but also the idea it seems to be to justify why he's so obsessed with a circular prison he needs to prove that circular buildings in general are just a good idea so all of society could be based everything could be circles building. what if schools were circles yeah. what if uh insane asylums were circles <laughs> you know? so you know th this I, I, was, I was trying to tell a story my favorite passage in this mm -hmm. that i couldn't find mm -hmm. It's one where at the beginning of one of his letters, it's probably like 30 letters in that he writes this. He says, I was reading pamphlets that I'd written several years ago when I was at a friend's house. He had them on his bookshelf and I pulled them out and I read them and I couldn't really make sense of what I was saying, but it seemed pretty stupid. Yeah, uh -huh. but I probably still maintain that was a good idea because it was my idea. Uh yeah. <laughs> and then he, after writing this flight of fancy that turned into an obsession, which he sent in volumes as a letter. Yeah. It wasn't even a real book until he added that awful preface that David <laughs> read you earlier. Yeah. He became so embittered 
that Britain didn't immediately allocate funding to tear down all of its pre-existing prisons and replace them with panopticons, that after this point, his work becomes characterized by uh, intense distrust of the establishment, uh, you know, belief that governments are controlled by secret cabals. Yeah. He expected everybody to just clamber over themselves to, to have this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and he, he, he was so invested in this idea, so obsessed with it, that he offered to, for free, work as the warden in the, the sort of the test case version of this prison. He was like, I, I oh, believe in this. Will, will, you, will you, Jeremy? Oh, what a sacrifice. It's not like that's what you've always wanted to do. Yeah, you know, uh, draw your own conclusions about what motivates a man to do something like that. But um, yeah, I think I think we sort of moved from an obsessive to your next point, which is just a weird little guy. Yeah, very strange man. Uh, among other things, I think we alluded to this uh, in, in a previous episode when we were talking about this, this series that we're going to do. Um, he was concerned. The preserving his body yeah, thing is a big. He one. was concerned, or someone told him, I think, that his friends would miss him. Yeah, one of his friends said, "Well, well I think I think he was in an argument. Actually, one of his friends was like, well, 'Well, we'll miss you when you die, uh-huh. Jeremy.' Because I think I think Jeremy Bentham was explaining why he didn't miss people that died, right. or something like that. And they said that, <laughs> and he was so taken aback by that that he thought, well, there's no reason for my friends to miss me when I die, uh, because." I can still be with him. So he has his body meticulously preserved so that they can take it to parties with his friends and he will be there with him. Yeah. This is the man that we're trusting for social theory. This is a man that supposedly understands human motivation. Yep. Uh, If you, if you go to university college, London, you can still see his remains his in head. display. Well, the the head is no longer on display because apparently it has started to decompose beyond the the point of presentability. So they've replaced the head. They should leave it there. They've anyway. replaced the head with <laughs> uh, like a wax doll head, I guess. But his his oh well, now I miss his him. his skeleton though <laughs> remains on display, dressed in his clothing, with the fake head perched on top of it. So. Yeah, you can go hang out with your friend Jeremy and you won't miss him because his remains are still there. The matter. Yeah, and the worst the worst part of Jeremy's gone anyway, which is his <laughs> ideas and his talking. Yeah. Like a lot of people contemporaries were like, you know, I visited Jeremy. He only likes to talk to one person at a time, well let anybody else in the room, and he talks endlessly mm-hmm. and won't let anybody get a word in edgewise. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't do that anymore. No. Uh, <laughs> anyway, should we talk about... Oh, do you want to tell the story about his nephew? That's a good That's, one. Yeah, I, I go ahead and tell that one. Then I think we should probably get into what he had to say about the legal system. Um, so at some point, Jeremy's nephew, this is the son of the, uh, the younger brother that took care of him his whole life, uh-huh. notices that his uncle is probably a deeply unhappy man. <laughs> um, or at least thinks he is, because I don't know how anybody could enjoy living this yeah. way. Anyway, he says, I think, you know, I have some friends, a couple women who I think you would really like to meet. And I'd like to invite them over so that you can meet them, mm-hmm. Uncle Jeremy. And Uncle Jeremy responds, why would I want to do that? If I don't like them, it will not cause me pleasure. And therefore, there is no reason for you to have them come. And if I do like them, all the more reason not to have them come, for I shall miss them once they have left. And then I will be unhappy, in fact, more unhappy than I am right now. 
Therefore, there is no reason for me to meet your friends. Mm-hmm. And after this point, Jeremy's nephew did not try to cheer him up anymore. I actually don't know if that's but true. We, but we can, we that can would, assume. That would certainly annoy me. <laughs> I think we can assume because at that point, you could make that same basic argument about anything enjoyable that you could do. It's like either, you know, oh. Yeah, emotions are transient, yeah, Jeremy. Well, it, this is something we have to accept if we're humans. Yeah. Like, you should be used to this because you've been a human your whole life. Has he, though? That's the, the sort of the big question. <laughs> what I was going to no, say. he's been a scholastic. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> is, you know, you could, if his nephew had said, what, like, you know, I want to take you uh, go-karting or fly fishing or something. There's some activity we could do together for fun. But when we're done, I won't be fly fishing anymore. Right. Yeah, either I won't like it and you'll have made me unhappy or I'll like it, but then we'll have to stop eventually and then that'll make me even sadder. So I'm just never going to do yeah, anything. Actually, you know, the, I have to stop eventually explains a lot of why he did the things he did. Yeah. They were things that he didn't have to stop eventually, and he would just keep doing them despite people's protestations <laughs> that they're getting too many letters. <laughs> yeah. that's a, Yeah. All the things he seemed to... The post will keep sending them. You don't have to stop. Mm-hmm. All the things he seemed to genuinely invest himself in were, yeah, basically things that could be extended indefinitely and that he could do by himself because nobody else would need, you know, either want to be around him or would need to be around him. Anyway, uh, yeah, but the fact that emotions are transient is exactly why it's not a great idea to make your entire system of ethics and legislation predicated upon human emotions. Right. And uh... Because those change minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. So if you're trying to make something that's grounded in something that's like solid and can be relied upon human emotion is about the worst choice that you can make. Yeah. And in case you think that we're, you know, we're making assumptions here, he, he genuinely puts it in that same, that same book principle of morals and legislations that the people making law for your society should also be thinking about pleasures and pains when they make law. Like that, that's not just an assumption right. we're making based on the things he said about ethics. He out and out says it. So Congress yep. in our context should be thinking, what could we do that will bring people the most pleasure? And that's what we're going to make a law that, that will accomplish. And the worst part is I think they do do that now. Not because pro- Jeremy not, Bentham talked probably about Probably not that, uh, that probably doesn't literally describe the thought process, but in many ways, yeah. No, what's going to be good for my constituents? Right. Yeah. I don't care if it's constitutional. What's going to be good for my constituents? What will make them happy? And I I do think that that, this is something we complain about all the time, that people misread the situation in in the U.S. They misunderstand what the Constitution is and how it works and thinks that if nothing expressly forbids you from doing something, that you can do it. And that's, you know, that's most things. The, The Constitution doesn't have a lot specific to say about what you can't do. That's just not the right. way it's written. Like 10 things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for the most part, yeah, you have these lawmakers and they just spend all day thinking about what's the most beneficial to the most people, especially the most people who vote for me. Um, Cause right. that's to my benefit as well. But right. yeah. Well, that, that's not the, qu- I mean, even, you know, even irrespective of the U S constitution, right. I mean, you can look back to Cicero. The first question you ask when making a law is, is this right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even if you eventually get to, does this is this conducive to human flourishing, however one of the 
Hellenistic guy, as I want to put <laughs> yeah. it. You have to first determine that it's not something that is inherently wrong to do. You can't ever have laws that are unjust. Justice is not a concept to Jeremy Bentham. No. And if justice is not a concept, because the pleasure-pain dynamic is all that you talk about, well, that totally reframes so many elements in our society. Prisons become not about punishing wrongdoing. They become about rehabilitating prisoners. And then when they become about rehabilitation, you know, people like to spin that all the time, like it's somehow a more humane system of having prisons. No, that's a system that justifies 24-7 spying on your prisoners yeah. because the state has an interest in their internal well-being, their outcome after this process is over. Yeah, yeah. It's not something where they violated someone else's rights and are now subject to punishment. Yeah, that's... Well, probably at some point, I'm just realizing this now, we'll probably need to spend a whole episode on the rehabilitation theory of, 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 we of justice. But yeah, because that's I didn't explain that thoroughly enough at all. No, but it, I think you're right, though. But that Jeremy is a big cause of that. Theory. Yeah. You know, that that was not. Nobody thought that prior. No. And, uh, you know, I want to say briefly, because there's probably some people out there who might say, oh, yeah, we want. Why wouldn't we want to rehabilitate prisoners? And I'll say, like, you know, the. In brief, you go from a position where you're respecting the person as a moral agent. You say, you you know, we know that you understand right and wrong. You did something wrong. You should be punished for that. To the kind of person you are is fundamentally wrong. We yeah. know better. You are a bad person. We need to fix Yeah, we you. know better. So we're going to make you into the right kind of person. And then you can go. And yeah, that's, it doesn't respect the agency of that sick. person. I think it's sick. Yeah. I think it's yeah. sick. It's, you know, punishments are specifically limited in the ways that, you know, they are to be meted out. And then that punishment is met. And then that person is, has no debt. Right. They can go back. They're, they're free. Yeah. You know, that's the way it ought to work. That's what we're fans of. Yes. Okay. Any more on just a weird little guy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are other stories out there, uh, but. I think maybe we'd talk about what's this circum oh, circumgeneration. Oh, yeah. So this is this is one that I, I found that I like a lot. This was another one on that list of uh, ten things you didn't know about Jeremy Bentham. And it was clear by the end of the list they were running out of interesting things to say. So this is one of them. Um basically he uh he liked to, you know, take his exercise to keep himself healthy, and he would refer to it as making his circumgyrations. And what it turned out that meant <laughs> was that he would jog around his garden um but he called it circumgyrating <laughs> yeah that's fits <laughs> which all right uh, then. you know well we'll talk about this in a minute but part of his plan to reform law was to put things in plain language and yet instead of saying he would run he said he would circumgyrate he would never do something base like running no. <laughs> that's beneath him uh-huh. <laughs> Anyway, so what kinds of things did he say? Well, we kind of talked about that a lot already. Yeah. Um, I think Panopticon, which is supposed to resolve all of society's problems somehow. Yeah. Um, the, the circular plan of a building is going to fix everything from prisons to schools to hospitals. We didn't even really talk about natural light, um, but. No, we didn't. That's a recurring theme there. It's a, you know, he anticipated it's a given that if the panopticon will work 
everybody would want yeah. it, oh, right? For sure. Because surely everybody has the same priorities, Jeremy Bentham does. <laughs> so all he, only thing he has to prove is that it would work Correct. for its desired end. Yeah. And, and because he's a man of limited imagination, <laughs> the only real objection that he can anticipate to this plan is that the orientation of the cells will not provide sufficient light yeah. uh, for the prisoners to work. <clears throat> so literally, it's like every other paragraph. <laughs> throughout the entirety of Panopticon. Actually, like I think it starts in like the third letter. So I really suspect that his friend he was writing to replied, yeah, but there's not going to be enough light. Yeah. So then for the remainder of the book, every other paragraph is like, this feature ensures that there is sufficient natural light. Yeah, which he, he tends to write in all capital letters um, every time he... Which makes me really strong, strongly suspect the friend objected. Yeah, that, that could very well be. You know. Uh, but again, you know, you see the fixation on one thing, which is a, a pretty abstract concern versus the more, you know, fundamental objection of your, you know. But won't this, won't this abuse what it is to be human? Right. Yeah. Like, people? I know these people are prisoners, but does that really mean that you should just be staring at them all the time and they should never have any kind of privacy of, of any kind? Uh Yes. No, that's not what matters to Jeremy Bentham. What matters to, <laughs> to Jeremy Bentham is uh, that they, there is sufficient natural light for them to do their handicraft, which, you know, that, that's part of the book, too, is, you know, we'll, we'll offset the cost of, of building. We can this. make them productive. Yeah. That's, what, that's how it saves money, yeah. because somebody's watching them do their work and can make sure they're doing it all the right. time. Because you know how you work best, right? When somebody's <laughs> staring over your shoulder, watching your every move. Right. Uh, so not only will they have enough room to do their work, but also the guy in the middle will surely get enough light by some kind of like contraption that will build to make sure he has enough light. Um, no, I think he was just saying like these windows are this size. That's there, enough to light in plenty. There of was light. something about like a, a all, like a pseudo telescope at one point. That's right. And if there's not enough yeah. light, somehow you could build this elaborate, incredibly expensive machine yeah. with lenses in it. Yes. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about uh -huh. that. <laughs> anyway, it, as with every... He would have been a big fan of anime if he were alive now. <laughs> I don't really know enough about anime to sort of make that connection, but I'll take your word for it. And it sounds... I don't know that I do either. It sounds like an insult. I, I, can, I, I can tell. He would have been a big fan. Um, but no, Nothing against anime. Just... But I, you see the tendency... I think he would have liked it. You see it. the tendency in every aspect of his thought to think he grasps the nature of something and then just fixate on one element of it while ignoring everything else. Um, yeah. So he thinks he's got happiness figured out. It's about pleasure. So everything's... And wh why, are, why are we stressing this fixation so mm -hmm. much? Well, because in a lot of ways, our society today, at least in terms of our view of law and social yeah. order is actually very hyper fixated on some really specific and not at all intuitive things yeah. uh, that we just kind of now take for granted as those are the things that you prioritize and care about right. when you're running a society. Yeah. So what are a few of those things? Well, we've talked about a couple already. Um, one is going to be you know, the social utility ideas that have seeped over uh, a few others, David. Uh, one of the big ones, in my opinion, anyway, is um, sort of psychological validation so there's, there's been a lot of, of talk recently. Trust the science. Well, th there's that for sure. Um, but what I meant was this uh, tendency to say, oh, you know, don't use violent speech. You know, um, mm. so. 
Yeah, that we should like molly coddle everybody in the workplace and never give any criticism of what they do. Yeah, well, in, because because y- studies have shown that people don't like being criticized. Basically, yeah, <laughs> and and like it's one thing to treat that as like pragmatic, right? Like you know, oh, you know, if you're a manager in in, a, in an office or whatever, positive reinforcement works better. That may or may not be true. Yeah, you're you're, you're going to attract more more flies with honey than with vinegar. Right. But when people start making arguments about you know limiting free speech, like you know, this comes up on college campuses the most recently. Uh, but based on the idea that you know certain kinds of speech actually violate other people's rights because it, it, it you know, it, it invalidates their psychological sense of self. Well, and, and that's him. The, the concept of harm that's been appropriated there is one that's directly from Jeremy Bentham's principles of moral legislation. Yeah. If you look at the old English common law, harm was something that had to do with actually, you know, bodily yeah. harming somebody or an act which was likely to give rise to bodily harm or cause somebody the imminent apprehension bodily harm. It wasn't just stuff that you didn't like. But when your your fundamental principle for legislation becomes maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, it turns out that you know things that aren't bodily actually matter a lot to people. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're properly the subject of legislation, but it can make people very unhappy if you say things they don't right. like. So if you're if you're going with a benthamic model here, legislation about those things is totally on the table. Yeah. There there's no intrinsic reason why free speech should be guaranteed in a system that's that's based right. on this idea um you know you, and part part of the problem too is how how much of a wax nose this turns out to be because you can make an argument for anything you know because again you're talking about things you can't actually quantify right. so you know most people probably don't want to openly advocate for ending free speech so you know you can come up with an argument for well oh well that's very we are still Americans. Yeah. yeah. You know. But, you know, and so, you know, you could justify to yourself, well, you know, if we allow free speech, people are more likely to use that speech in, in the way that makes them happy and blah, blah, blah. The, the you know, the benefits would, would outweigh the, the negatives. More and more I've been hearing, though, that there need to be limits on right. free speech. Right. And that's... That people say there's a limit on free speech. There's not a limit on free speech. The freedom of speech is protected. Right. Now, not all things are part of the freedom of speech. Right. But it's not limited. Right. And yeah, and so, you know, things that we think of as baseline under this kind of philosophy are actually just a matter of perception, really. You know, right. so the the more people start to think, you know, offensive speech is so bad, the more plausible it is that you can just outlaw certain kinds of speech outright. Yeah. Well, and it's so bad because it causes a lot of people unhappiness. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Doesn't matter that it doesn't cause any harm that would have been cognizable under any legal theory known pre Ben. Yeah. Or that you could actually demonstrate without, you know, just appealing to, well, everyone says this makes them sad or whatever. Well, displeasure is harm now under a Bentham Mm -hmm. system. You know, it doesn't have to cause damage. It just has to cause displeasure. Um, But, you know, this all relates to, you know, we, we joke, you know, trust the science like it's absurd. But I don't think we've really explained why that's an absurdity. It's an absurdity because the science never dictates social policy. It can't. It doesn't matter how certain a particular scientific theorem is. Right. Social policy is a different thing entirely. It has different calculus that goes into it, different priorities that are weighed. The idea of saying the science says something, therefore we ought to do that thing, is really a direct result of the kind of reasoning that you find in Bentham. Yeah, yeah because we, we've come to think 
only certain sets of of benefits actually matter. That's that's the sort of the practical right. upshot of all of this is you can't actually know what makes people happy, but we can identify things that seem to make people happy most of the time, and then we sort right. of absolutize those things, and that becomes how you measure happiness. All right. So the last thing we're going to hit is <laughs> actually probably the most direct focus yes. <laughs> of at least our purpose. Which is Jeremy Bentham at one point wrote a book that was in direct response to, to William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. And if you've watched our content before, you know the commentaries on the laws of England, written in I think the 1750s, were sort of the founding fathers' Bible for how the law is supposed to work. Yeah. Um, they have ideas of separation of powers in them. They have ideas about um, the origin of law, the basis for law. Uh, a lot of the things that you probably learn either through cultural osmosis or in some cases may have been taught a little bit about like back in fifth grade yeah. about social contract theory, uh, about natural law theory, a lot, all that stuff's found in Blackstone. So needless to say, Bentham didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he wrote a response, which is just called fragment on government. And it's not very good, is it? <laughs> no. Um... So he did write other things responding to Blackstone too. This is the most widely known, uh, but the main thrust of Bentham's criticism here is that Blackstone's legal theories are based more on tradition and historical precedent than, as we've been talking about, being based upon principles of reason and utility, as Bentham thinks that they should right. have. And again, now, what he means by utility is tending to cause the most people the most pleasure and avoid the most pain for the most people. Yeah, that is a preferable system, Bentham thinks, to... Tradition and historical precedent. Right. We're going to see if that's true. Yeah. I think you can guess our uh -huh. answer. Okay, so he first Blackstone's first couple theories are about, because, you know, I think as they rightly should be, are about justifying the fact that, that municipal laws exist at all. So he talks about laws of the universe. He talks about the creator of the universe. He talks about how human laws are derivative of that. And that's where he gets into kind of, you know, natural law theory, talks about social contract theory. That's most of what Bentham focuses on here, because despite being an obsessive pedant who only cared about details, he didn't really care to talk about other people's details very no. much. So, so he, he focused on those big picture things. But he, he, what he ends up doing is he treats Blackstone's entire discourse on the origin and foundation of municipal laws uh, as if it's essentially wholly irrelevant to Blackstone's project. Um, and specifically, he finds it weird that Blackstone would see the need to justify the right of a government to make laws. Uh, he treats it as sort of a given. The governments can make laws. That's what they're for. That's what they're here to right. do. If you are natural law minded, if you care about constitutionality, I think you're going to take Blackstone's side on this. Yeah. We really want to make sure governments have that power before they start doing it, right? Yeah. And it, it, I. It, you see already, we, we alluded to this earlier, Bentham does not think in terms of rights. That's not on his mind at all, you know? In fact, he explicitly argues against yeah. it in this yeah. work. Yeah, uh, so you don't need to be concerned that, you know, a, a government doing X, Y, or Z will violate the rights of the people because the people don't have any rights. And you don't need to worry about whether or not the government has the right to do that because... Well, he doesn't believe in rights or wrongs. Yeah. It's just, yeah, so. it, whoever can do the thing that makes the most people the most happy, which again, basically means multiply pleasure the most, should just do it. 
No, no questions yeah. asked. If they're in power, yeah. then mm -hmm. that's what they're supposed to do. That's how you know if they're a good ruler yeah. or not. Uh, but anyway, he, he critiques Blackstone's ideas about natural law and the social compact, arguing that there is no basis for the idea that people naturally have certain rights or that governments are formed by social contracts. Instead, he proposes, of course, that governments are formed out of necessity to maintain social order and that laws should be created based on their utility to society. Yeah. So here's a quote where he talks about this. If by state of nature a man means anything, it is the state men are supposed to be in before they are under government. So again, referring to sort of Locke's theory here about state of nature. Yeah. Um, already he's wrong. Um, Locke refers to state of nature as a state that is logically prior to government, not one that people were ever actually right. in. It's one that is presumed as a ba base upon the fact that men have certain rights intrinsic in the fact that they are people with the capacity to act upon their external environment. So anyway, misunderstanding that from the get go. So, you know, he, he this is the guy that sort of started that whole trend of reading Rousseau into Locke, if you know what I mean. I think because Rousseau talks about a state of nature as well. Yeah. Um, and he means something very different from it than what Locke means. Yeah, and I think that's a a lot of people, I think, do make that mistake because we've gotten so used to the idea, which is a very Rousseau-derived idea of the, you know, the, the so-called noble savage that, you know, people who yeah. live close to nature. Man is, man is born free and yet everywhere he is in chains. And it's society that imposes the chains right. in Rousseau's Right, and, and so people will look at that and assume that's what somebody like Locke meant. And it's, it's not, it's not what he yeah. meant. And then, and then from there, you know, they read it into Locke, which makes it get read into Blackstone, which makes it get read into Jefferson. <laughs> so when Jefferson refers to the laws of nature and nature's God, people look at the Declaration of Independence and think it's saying something that it fundamentally isn't yeah. saying. When you refer to natural law, what you are referring to is things that are shown to be true about what is right and wrong prior, you know, not, not chronologically prior, but logically prior to any discussion about government. Yeah. In other words, we need to have the conversation about right and wrong, what people can and can't do, before we talk about how best to order our interactions with each right. other. Because we need to make sure that ordering our interactions with each other is consistent with what's right and wrong. That's all the state of nature has to do with government. Yep. That's it. Jeremy Bentham doesn't understand <laughs> that. And I think this is the real genesis of the fact that people don't understand that. Now, I suspect people will listen to my explanation I just given of this and say, I've never heard that before. I had no idea that's what Locke or Jefferson or Blackstone was saying. In fact, they may not even understand the point that I made, even though it's it's, it's very it's very foreign to our way of thinking yeah. now. And that's Bentham's fault. <laughs> In many ways, yes. <laughs> no, because it was it, nobody ever explained this point in the 1700s because it was obvious to them. Yeah. Now the exact opposite's obvious. Anyway, he later acknowledges that Blackstone says the state of nature didn't actually exist, but he just sort of takes that as a stupid contradiction. <laughs> it doesn't cause him to reevaluate the point that he had just made. Right. Um, that's that's a, that's so, a trend. I want to I want to say something about that uh, in a bit. But anyway. Yeah, he, he, that's, he does that a lot. <laughs> this guy says this thing that he clearly didn't mean. Later, he contradicts this. No, he explained what he meant that you misinterpreted. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, he also makes the classic and, you know, uh, extremely scholastic <laughs> assumption that the social contract refers to an actual document that people sign. Mm -hmm. 
and then a sentence later acknowledges that Blackstone says the opposite. But that doesn't matter because... But continues with that assumption. I mean, this is one... You've probably... Actually, this criticism of the social contract theory may have occurred to you at some point, is that I never signed the social contract. You ever heard somebody say that? Uh, You know, I don't think they usually mean it literally but they mean you know i didn't agree to this in broad terms yeah yeah exactly they, that is literal because contracts aren't just signed you can have verbal well, no, 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 but the phrase signed you know they anyway they don't mean the signed part yeah. literally but they do mean i never agreed to this contract right. that, that's now ostensibly being held yeah. over me that's not the social contract the social contract is not a literal agreement between two parties <laughs> where government is one party and the people are the right. other The social contract is an agreement by course of dealing that we have with each other to structure our social interactions in a certain way. You know, it's like, it's no different than if if you had a deal, you know, if you were running a business and you were buying fish to like to run your restaurant or something, buying fish from a fisherman. And first time you did it, fisherman said, it's a hundred bucks for, what is fish? I I have no idea. Wholesale fish. No. hundred bucks for, we'll say a dollar a pound. So hundred bucks for hundred pounds of fish. And he sells it to you. Next time he also says hundred bucks, hundred pounds of fish. And the next time you just give him a hundred and he gives you a hundred pounds of fish and you keep going on like that for a long time. That's a contract. That's a course of dealing contract. So no, you didn't have to agree to the social contract. You agreed to it by being in the society that has it. And, And by necessarily being forced to interact with other people, you know, it's, a totally stupid way of conceiving of this. And I, I think it's probably the more common way to understand it. Now. I think that's true. Yeah. You know, that, it, that the social contract was something way back when that people agreed upon, sat down and signed pen to paper. Or, yeah, or um, at least that because that didn't happen means that the social contract doesn't it's invalid. Really exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like maybe people might say our social contract is the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, or they might say that actually people never ascended to that. So we don't have one. No, neither of those is the social contract. The social contract is not an actual document. It's not an actual point in time. It's not an actual agreement. It's a course of dealing. The fact that we have the same traditions in history and have lived in a society together for a very long time. Um, But Bentham doesn't like that. So anyway, he critiques Blackstone's respect for tradition and custom in law. Kind of naturally leads into that. So what Bentham suggests is that because law as an institution is old, does not necessarily mean that it's good or useful. He instead insists that every law and institution should be judged by its utility and ability to promote the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. If you listen to what I've been saying, I'm not arguing that our society, the laws that it has, the expectations that are imposed upon us as a result of living in this society, I'm not arguing that they are good because they are old. I am arguing that they are certain because they are Mm -hmm. old. They can give us confidence because they are old. The expectations are known and manageable because there are lots of past instances that we can weigh against when evaluating future conduct. That's the reason why it's valuable that it's old, Jeremy. This isn't some kind of... What's the fallacy? The, The historical fallacy where... Or an argument from mm-hmm. tradition is what I think yeah. they call it. You know, that just because we've always done it this way, it's therefore right. We're not arguing that it's right because we've done it this way. We're arguing that if it isn't wrong and we've been doing it this way, it makes pretty good sense for us to keep doing it yeah. this way. Yeah, because as we've said on this show numerous times, one of the best things 
that a system can give you is predictability and stability. You know, you, you right. may not agree with every aspect of the law, but if it's predictable and stable, you know what not to do if you don't want to run afoul of it. The argument would be incumbent. Obviously, the first question you ask is, is the law just? Yeah. Um, and then if the law is just, I think it makes more sense to go with a just law that you have rather than right. any, a similarly just law that you don't have, because the administration of the former is going to be much simpler than the administration of the latter. Yeah. Right. Because there's all the case law and all the rest of it. But Jeremy doesn't do that. If Jeremy wants to no. make the argument that tradition is an insufficient argument for the English common law, he has to meet the burden of showing that our laws are not just. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't believe in justice as a measure for law, so he's not <laughs> going to be able to do that. Right. Instead, he's going to try to show that they're irrational, by which he means they, they don't. don't meet his system. Right. Yeah, they don't do the things he likes, uh -huh. basically. That, that's a common thing for people of a very scholastic persuasion to do um, <laughs> is to just arbitrarily insist that everything they do is rational. Right. Actually, I'm not sure how we haven't hit this yet, but a lot of why Bentham became popular early on was people saw the goings on over in France. They saw that they were constructing a new rational system of laws. <laughs> yeah. And they said, we have a similarly scholastic guy over here who's been <laughs> sending us letters about this stuff for decades. Let's see what he has to say. Uh, and obviously, Bentham ends up being a very big fan of the French. Uh, he's a big fan of the French Revolution. One of the yeah. only people I know of in history who's thought that their revolution was great and that our independence movement was terrible. Um, that that has come into vogue in recent years as well. But yeah, for a long time, you're right. That was not a common One view. of the only noteworthy people in history that I've heard say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've heard idiots on Twitter say it, but I don't really count that. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess one broad point I want to make about Bentham's concept of government, which may be obvious, but I want to state it outright, is that there's no concept of trusteeship in his idea yeah. of government. It's not that there are rights other people have that they entrust to government so that they can be administered on their behalf. That's just not, that's not something that exists. In fact, Bentham identifies only three types of duties. He calls those political, moral, and religious. And what he says makes them duties is that they are enforced by some kind of sanction or punishment. Yeah. Um, you'll find he loves the stupid lists like this. We haven't gone over too many <laughs> other ones, but he, he loves those. But yeah. anyway, here, here's what he says about it. It is my duty to do something if I am liable to be punished according to the law if I do not do it. This is the original, ordinary, and proper sense of the word duty. Have these supreme governors any such duties referring to like kings and people in charge yeah. now? No, for if they are at all liable to punishment according to the law for doing or not doing something, then they are not supreme governors at all. Those by whose authority they are liable to be punished are the supreme governors. Right. He doesn't believe that our rulers are subject to anyone or anything or that they have any duties to the populace. Yeah. Because they can't, because no one will punish them for not doing it. Um, that's sort of the antithesis of what we stand for as an organization. We believe that everyone is subject to the law. Yeah, um, that's the, the meaning of our name as an organization is, is directly on point in the opposite direction. No, uh, 
you know, I the find... supreme governors are subject to the law because the law is king. Right. Lex and even Rex. if no one punishes them for it, they are still liable for dereliction of their duty. Right. And I would agree they ought to be punished for it, but it doesn't make the person punishing them their superior. It's, right. you know, th these things are, are intersecting and cross-cutting. You can have authority over somebody for different kinds of things. You know, you can think of, there's lots of examples of this, but, you know, think about, so somebody might be a supervisor over somebody else at work, but mm -hmm. they're also both on a recreational basketball team. And the one that is the subordinate at work is, what do you call a superior in basketball, David? Team captain. Or, is a team or, captain. Yeah. Yeah. So, like he, so yeah. he might be in charge of the other guy on the basketball court. It's just hard to understand. It's not just a yeah. strict one-to-one -one thing. You don't just have superiors and inferiors. People have right. authority over different kinds of things. Yeah, it's it's a weird sort of resurrection of, I think we might have talked about this, this idea before that in uh, the revival of Roman law, which you know, it was sort of a, a renaissance and an early modern phenomenon, but brought back in the idea that uh, whatever the will of the sovereign is, is what the law is. Right. Uh, this is a sort of an Even though the Romans did not idea. think that. No, but uh, the fact that they had limited access to their actual, you know, legal texts made uh, made a lot of people think that's how it worked. Like they argue, uh, I mean, it's yeah, like everything Cicero wrote, everything Cato wrote, like... Yeah, but when when you only have the code like of Justinian half to of what go Seneca on, Seneca wrote like yeah, even Plutarch was a Platonist. <laughs> yeah, but you know if you if you only have the code of Justinian to look at, you probably have a distorted idea of what Roman law in if fact you, was. If the only tool uh, you have is a code of Justinian, it's that same sort of idea that there's just somebody who is just sort of by status in charge of everything. Uh, but now it's you know, like the guy in the can, center of the Panopticon. Yeah, they, that guy gets to punish everybody. That actually yeah. kind of is what the, the guy in the Panopticon was supposed to do. He was yeah. supposed to order that you be punished. If and they're not his superior wrong. in any way. They are no. totally subject to him. Yeah. In fact, they have no rights that are preserved from him. So it's, <laughs> right. Panopticon's, a, the reason it's so illustrative of Jeremy Bentham's thought is that it is a yeah. microcosm of what he wants society to be. Yeah. And he acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Needless to say, Jeremy Bentham disagrees with the concept of common law and yeah. makes a very similar criticism to one that you will often hear today, where he argues that judges have effectively usurped the legislative power. Right. Because, you know, you have binding precedent cases. David, you want to tell us about his solution to that? So Bentham's idea is rather than having all this judge created law, what if we just logically exhaust which of course all of the possibilities? Isn't that, I mean, taking a step back, which obviously isn't judge-created right. law, right? I mean, judges yeah. are given common law rules, and then where there are ambiguities, they are expected to resolve them. They're not supposed right. to make things up that contradict past right. rulings. That's the principle of stare decisis. I mean, this is a common criticism people level against a common law system now, but it's just never been true. No. Anyway, rather than all of that, Bentham basically thinks we should just make sure we have a law for all of the logical possibilities for things you might want a law against. And well, and how do you do that? Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the problem, right? The reason we yeah. have a common law system is that you could never possibly legislate every point. There's always going to be ambiguities. Judges have to resolve that. Makes a lot of sense. And then we make that right. decision binding going forward. The solution, mm -hmm. have a law that does account for all the possibilities. <laughs> yeah. I just want to pause on that because that's so wonderful. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, so how do you go about doing that? Well, you just logically exhaust all of those possibilities. So, you know, you, <laughs> he thinks you can divide any category into basically X and not X. And then you can keep doing that over and over again. Who's he think he is? Charles Linnaeus? Basically, yes. I, I read <laughs> some some secondary literature that commented that he was inspired by the classification. Linnaeus was the one who invented the, the sort of taxonomy. The original, Tax, yeah, yeah, the, the, the original species, taxonomy. You know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, whatever. Yeah. Probably, so the, the idea one. being, you describe until the point where you can't make generalizations anymore. This is his, you know the this is the thing that's most specific that you can possibly explain. Which, by the way, doesn't even work in biology. No. Um, there are subspecies, there are subclasses, there are superorders. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it turns out to have been a little too neat. And that, you know, surprise, It works surprise. really well. Like, it's, it's a yeah. great system for categorizing things. But if you want something that is actually going to express reality uh, in, in, a, yeah. in an unmitigated and pure way, you're that's looking in the wrong it. place. You know, yeah. no, I, Charles Linnaeus is great. No criticism of him. But. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's a handy it's the, system. The misapplication but. by people who try to do the same thing in the social sphere are the people who yeah. are stupid because they didn't even understand what it was doing in the scientific sphere. Right. But so so Bentham's idea is basically if we just keep doing this X and not X over and over again, we'll have a law eventually for everything that you could want a law for. But you know, it sounds it, like it, a plan, Jeremy. It's going to take right. you a while to do that, I bet. And acknowledging that you know. You're going to have to very, very, ask her to call again later when, when Catherine the Great shows up. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very humbly, though, he admitted you probably, you know, it's not realistic to expect that we get this right first try. You know, it'll take a little while. That was probably so, after people complained that his laws weren't good. <laughs> very likely, yes. But so when an ambiguity comes up where, you know, a wait, 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 you're not or... going to get it right first try. <laughs> wait no, a minute. No. Maybe not. Maybe so then not. you're back Maybe. to the same system we had before. Well, not where, quite. Where you find out, because you're not going to find out they got it wrong until there's a case in controversy that arises, and who's going to decide that other than a judge? Well, here's the system for that. And remember that the problem oh, no. he has with the existing system Shall I put on that, a seatbelt? Yes. Because the problem he has with the existing system Click. is that judges create laws. So here's his solution. Whenever, you know, an ambiguity comes up, the judge immediate, which is what he calls a trial judge, yeah, let's just rename everything. Right. Because mm -hmm. it's uh, not like there are thousands of lawyers who had used these terms for centuries and they right. have well understood meanings that won't be misconstrued now. Yeah. But Better to Jeremy Bentham, he Jeremy Bentham does not like a lot of the traditional English nomenclature. He doesn't like the Latinisms. He doesn't like the French. He wants And he to somehow thinks that an invented term is that only he uses will be clearer to more people. Yeah, because once everyone agrees with him that it's better, they'll just start using it. For a couple anyway. centuries, maybe. <laughs> anyway. So, I guess we're at that point now. That's yeah. Where it's now uh, clearer. So, <laughs> so a judge immediate notices a, an ambiguity or a problem or something. And he proposes an amendment to the law to the appellate judge. Or in Bentham's terms, the judge appellate. Because you have to change that. So is the case term. automatically appealed? Like, even if no I, one challenges the outcome? Uh, I think only if the, the trial judge decides that it should be. And then um, do the parties have to keep litigating it? Like you got to keep incurring attorney's fees because this judge thought that the law should be amended? Or... I'm not clear on that. This is secondary literature. This isn't direct. So I, and they don't address that question. That's a good question, though. I'd be very curious. But anyway. <laughs> I bet he hasn't so thought the... about it. He didn't practice law long enough to think about that. 
Yeah. So then the appellate judge, if he decides, oh, that's a good amendment to the law, I want to pass that on. He passes it to the justice minister, who then does the same thing. A bureaucrat. Yep. And decides, oh, that's a good idea, though. That's a bad idea. And if it's a good idea, he submits it to the legislation minister, Mm. who then does the same thing and decides if he's going to pass it on to the, I love this term, contested interpretation committee. No. And if they think it's a good amendment. I don't think that's a good idea. And if they think that's a good amendment to the law, then they make it part of the law. But there's another way this can also it's brilliant. happen. It's brilliant, Jeremy. There's an, another way this can also happen, which is that uh, if the, the trial judge and then the appellate judge both agree, they and then no one in the legislature decides to say otherwise, their decision just immediately becomes part of the law code. So That's the same thing. Except... He just with, gives a veto to both the executive and the, the legislature. Yeah, except that's all he's done. He's created an executive and legislative veto on judicial actions. With the, the important difference that there is a way for judges to directly change the code of the law uh-huh. under this system instead of just changing the precedent. Yeah, that was the, the problem law. with uh-huh. the common law system. Now, a that doesn't solve the problem. It no, makes it not worse. at all. It I feel like that worse. goes without stating. And I, it's like, the criticisms are, it feels kind of like kicking a dog to criticize this guy. Cause like, <laughs> it's so, it so obviously has no merit. It's like, should I really rub it in? But I'm, I'm going to point out yeah. why this is not a great idea yeah. to do this. Rather than just having the judiciary get its fingers in the legislative pie, so to speak, you now have everybody doing it. Yeah. So it goes first to a beer. What's going to happen with this system? The bureaucrat is going to effectively pick which ones get approved and which ones don't because he has a budget he can spend. He can hire people who are underneath him. He can have tons of people go through all of them and then make recommendations to this legislative committee, right? Legislative yeah. committee is a committee. They have to examine everything with the full body present. They can't have separate delegations to go out and examine some of it. So they're going to rely very heavily on recommendations from the executive. So what yeah. does this do? Virtually guarantees an abusive administrative state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost designed to do that. Like, yeah, it's except it's, rather than having you know our abusive administrative state where it's just tons of regulations, they're actually the law. Yeah, like actual statutes. Yep. So, is it not a coincidence that our society tended toward executive overreach, given that Jeremy Bentham was as influential as he was? I mean, that, that's his system. That is the system you dispelled out. Mm-hmm. Are we ever going to talk specifically about Thomas Hobbes? We, we might or might not. Yeah. I bet we will. But uh, I kind of avoid talking. He's treated as way more influential than he is. Right. So that, that's one of the reasons. But, you know, this is a, a different face of Hobbes, but it's this, a very similar overall idea, I would say. I um, think this would make Hobbes clutch his pearls. It probably would, yeah, because it, it doesn't have any a, of the No, the of, legislative and executive power are separate. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have any of the rootedness that Hobbes has in, in Leviathan. It's just like as though someone took the worst sort of caricature of the Leviathan idea and was like, yeah, that's what we want. We just want to empower one body to make all the decisions for everybody so as to maximize benefit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would not be my first choice. No. 
anyway, uh, so that's our introductory episode, I think. <laughs> to, yeah, to you, you're going to get two more. Next one's going to be uh-huh. on his review of the Declaration of Independence. And then what's the last one? Uh we need to talk about exactly. I I know one thing we're going to talk about for sure is Bentham's influence on policing. Ooh, uh, yeah. We we may have some other things to talk about as well, but uh, for sure that. Yeah. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I we're all way over already. So I think we're gonna. We want to do Captain Kangaroo Court. I feel like this kind of was Captain Kangaroo Court, also just because of the absurdities. So. Yeah. Maybe that should be it for this time. All right. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Um, sorry if you didn't get your Captain Kangaroo Court. That's, um, well. Next time. Next, Next time. Next time. Sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. And stick around for our disclaimers. All right. Talk to you later, folks. See ya. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L-E-X-R-E-X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.